Good morning, SNNWT, well, New Orleans News and Views. It is Monday, May 18th, 10 a.m. We just heard Democracy Now!'s daily episode. Next, there is a Democracy Now! web-exclusive continuation of an interview with journalist Adriana Gallardo. And after that, we'll get into Counterspin from FAIR.org. This week on Counterspin, it is Ari Berman on voter suppression and coronavirus. Here we go. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the epicenter of the pandemic in New York City, with co-host Juan Gonzalez, who's in New Jersey, uh, broadcasting from his home to protect against community spread. Uh, New Jersey is number two in the pandemic in the United States. As we continue our interview with the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Adriana Gallardo, engagement reporter for ProPublica, where she's part of a collaboration with the Anchorage Daily News that just won the 2020 Pulitzer for the investigative report Lawless about sexual violence in the state of Alaska. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, Adriana, you wrote a magnificent piece about your own life called The Lucky Ones, where you revisit your own journey as a child who crossed the U.S.-Mexico border, memories brought up during a reporting trip to the border you did with your ProPublica colleague, Ginger Thompson. You write, quote, I wanted to call it luck, draw a straight line from that kid crossing in the late 80s to the woman there on assignment. But after that trip, my version of the story wasn't good enough. A discomfort was cemented by the gut punch I felt and will never forget crossing back over that particular stretch of border for a second time, when the Border Patrol asked, reason for travel? Ginger replied, we're journalists. The agent gave us the go-ahead, no questions asked, just like that. That luck felt particularly unfair. Those are the words of Adriana Gallardo. Welcome back to Democracy Now! for part two of this conversation. So, you came here as a child. You were undocumented for years. You lived with your brother and parents in the Chicago area. Talk about that journey and growing up in Chicago. Yeah. Um... I mean, the whole piece was about undoing a fantasy that I think I, I that I know I had created for myself, in in ways that um, maybe voluntary or involuntary, um, that finally catch up with me on this trip. You know, I, I had a very romantic notion of, of how we had crossed and um, had brief memory. You know, I was five, so I thought I remembered here and there. Um, after that trip to the border, I started asking more difficult questions of my parents. Um, and I'm a reporter, but I refused to ever sit them down and sort of have a, an interview about it. I think I was too afraid to, to learn what I ended up learning over the course of those two years after I went to the border with Ginger and, and came back. Um, but I grew up really happy with my, you know, my, my janitor family. Um, we did everything together. Um, my parents um, were janitors for this company. The, the man decides to sell. My dad takes on the business with absolute zero training in, in, in business or management. And, and my parents run this tiny janitorial service for all of my childhood. Um, and one of the parts where I feel very lucky was that they started cleaning the public libraries at our, in, our, in our suburbs. Um, they, at some point, we cleaned three or four um, libraries in a day. We'd just go from one to the other to the other on Sunday mornings. Um, 
And I, I became obsessed with books and words and language. And I think at the same time as I was learning all about, um, you know, literature and, and, you know, and doing my homework at, the, at an empty library, I was also always very conscious of, of why I was there, right? And it was my mother cleaning toilets. It was my father uh, mopping hard floors. It was, you know, always there at, at after hours or very early in the morning. Um, and I think both of those things sort of seeped in. And then, you know, fast forward. You know, I'm very, again, lucky to, to have moved on to go to school. Um, but all of the ways that those... those when you did know, you those... become documented? Do you remember that moment? Yeah. Oh, I remember it clearly. Um, you, this is also, like, a consequence of growing up in Chicago. My The only reasons we would ever miss school um, growing up in the 90s was um, our immigration... Uh, appointments downtown Chicago on Jackson um, and when the Bulls won a championship. Those were the only two reasons we could ever miss school and the only two reasons my father would, would not go to work. Um, it was, you know, the Bulls championships or immigration court. So for many years um, in our childhood, we would go to downtown to, to do our, our documentation. We were, this is, you know, the 90s when you could pay a fine, wait in line, quote unquote, and, and then um, eventually you'd be granted a green card and then eventually you could apply for citizenship. Um, so I, I was fifth grade, um, when, when we got our green cards and the first time we were able to go back to Mexico and, and meet the rest of our family. Um, I was five years old. My brother was, um, a few months old when we came. And Adriana, given that experience and the years it took you to become documented as a journalist now covering uh, issues such as the, the the continuing immigration debate in the country, your uh, your perspective, what you bring to the table when you cover these stories? Yeah, I mean, I think earlier in my career, it made me afraid that it would disqualify me from, from covering um, such issues. And, and it has been really difficult to, you know, when, when we were covering zero tolerance, to sort of separate myself from from that kind of story, um, I've been able to translate that into I hope um, better journalism because I I can I can understand and, and beyond empathize I think I see the value of of seeing those stories from from beginning to end instead of the part in the middle that that's gray. Um, and I think I, that's what I ask of myself. And I think this, this essay was particularly that for me, which was um, a full circle and being honest with myself about my own story in order to do a better job at telling other people's stories. Can you tell us about your tattoos? You're wearing a long sleeve shirt right now, but your journey um, is told through um, this journey really on your own skin. Your brother is a tattoo artist. Can you talk about your first tattoo and then take it from there? Yeah, um, I credit my editor for this piece, Michelle Garcia, for, um, for completely restructuring the piece to be about my tattoos. Um, I didn't realize it until we were editing and, and I was very stuck with, it took me nearly two years and several editors to get this piece out. So, um, Michelle was the one that really brought me, um, to the, to the finish line. But, um, you know, I started, I got, my first tattoo was in, in college, um, and freshman year, um, you're feeling free, you're feeling accomplished, you're, you're uh, testing the boundaries of rebellion. And I went and got a tiny tattoo on my ankle, um, in, in Aztec language and Nahuatl, um, for the word nemi, which means um, to move forward, to make progress, to to take take a step forward, um, 
Nahuatl words often mean many things. Um, and so only through context can you can you sort of read the story? And so I, I put that on my ankle, and it was just a, at that point a reminder of myself to to stay true to to both um, where I where I come from, and and to you know it was it was a blissful optimism at that point at, at 18. Um, I don't get any other tattoos until um, until I graduate college, and my second tattoo is on on my right shoulder, and it's another pair of Nahuatl words, which mean. Um, wisdom in writing, which was the equation that I thought was closest to journalism that, that our ancestors came up with. And so I put that on my back as a reminder and a commitment to tell these stories um, with the purpose of bringing forth, um, you know, the, the wisdom that, uh, that's been recorded for, for, for all of our history. Um, so I keep getting these tattoos. Um, this, the one on my back is the first my brother did on me by that point. Um, he had become a pretty accomplished tattoo artist. So it was fun for us to think about things to do together, um, in regards to his art and, and, and things that I cared about. Uh, fast forward, I end up getting a couple more on my arm and this whole time, you know, the things that I, that I feel merit enough of, of, of a marking on my body, um, are also the things that I struggle with in making sense in my head of my own story. And it wasn't until writing this piece where the docs really became obvious. It was like, oh, I needed to, you know, do an ode to my grandparents in this way. Got it. I, uh, you know, I have a garbage can on the back of, of my left arm for my parents and, and the janitorial work that, um, that we did together that gave us so much, you know, so much life and so much um, motivation growing up. Um, I have, you know, a tattoo of that on my on the back of my left arm. Um, it's a garbage can filled with flowers because it was an imagery that that we thought was interesting with um, the dichotomy. But all of these are, are sort of semi-private moments. Like I get these tattoos, I don't necessarily parade them, and it's just a thing that uh, belongs to me. Um, but in this piece, um, we make the connections of how how it all sort of was revealing the discomfort in in my own story and and the things that I needed to negotiate. Um, in order to see the the complete picture, so it was it was um, it was an interesting way I think for me to to narrate it. You call them art wounds, or your brother does. Uh, this beautiful quote of Beto, "'Tattoos are the art of pain in exchange for meaning. Tattoos start as open wounds that heal to reveal permanence. Growth requires healing. The only other person we let us cut open, to bleed, to fix something, to live, is a doctor. You say, my tattoos now tell my story in a way that I couldn't capture in words. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Collaborating with my brother on this was also deeply meaningful because he was, you know, he's he's he was there with, a, you know, he's if anyone understands the story, well, it's him. And so it was really special to be able to to look back at his work and my work and find this middle ground that really pays tribute to to my parents who are who are just wonderful. I mean, of course, I'm going to say nice things about my parents, but um, they're great. Even if your mom didn't like your first tattoo. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah, my first tattoo. My mom was deeply disappointed. The first time I made her cry, and I felt horrible for years. Um, but then my brother becomes a tattoo artist, and, <laughs> and many things changed. <laughs> uh, 
And, and Adriana, if, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the articles you worked on that uh, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize uh, on the situation in Alaska, where as many as one in three uh, Alaska villages have no local law enforcement, uh, and what that has meant uh, you know, for the, the the communities uh, in the uh, in the uh, less populated areas of Alaska. Yes. Um, so all credit due to, to the Anchorage Daily News, who who did a lot of the work in, in this first year of our investigation. Um, we had so much to do that it's become a two-year investigation. So we're now in the middle of our, our second year. Um, and what, uh, what the Anchorage Daily News brought to us was an incredible uh, collection. And this is how I became involved in the series. Um, back in 2018, when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening, um, the Anchorage Daily News put out a Google form and simply asked, you know, do you, you know, do you have a story of sexual assault in Alaska you'd like to share? And they were inundated with about 200 stories of, of people um, willing to share an instance or many instances where they've been um, raped or sexually assaulted in Alaska. And the surprise there was not that um, how many people and how many incidents were were being revealed was it was that people were ready to talk that you know the moment felt right for for the paper to finally take on an issue that is deeply endemic in the state um, Alaska has long led as the as the place that records the most um, incidents of sexual assault and rape in the country um, and somehow had been missing from a lot of the conversation over the past few years on sexual assault and so the the newspaper brought this to us and said you know there's an opportunity here we'd like to do this as a team. Um, they became a partner with the local reporting network, and we got to work. And and one of the the threads that um, that was deeply reported last year was the lack of enforcement in a state as 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 vast as Alaska. And so a lot of Kyle Hopkins reported reporting um, was you know was centered around this idea that um, not only is it the most one of the most dangerous the most dangerous place um, to be to be a victim of rape and sexual assault, but it's also one of the least uh, policed and the least uh, and the most broken court systems, and so really leaves the population on their own when it comes to um, to to seeing any sort of um, consequence or um, or justice being served in in this way. And so that's that's where the investigation went. Lots of last year, my focus remained to speak with the survivors and the victims and really begin to understand what toll it takes to live in a place where this happens so many times. Most of the, of the people we spoke with um, talked about many, many rapes in a single lifetime. Many begin in childhood. And then um, maybe by the second, third uh, incident, they're ready to talk about it and they make a report. But much of this goes unreported. Much of this is um, kept within families. M much of it is generational. Um, and it really is, doesn't discriminate. We, we met um, all, all races that were affected by this. Um, and so we've had incredible conversations with, with Alaska Natives um, that have really informed our journalism, that um, has really become a collaborative process and, and trying to tell the story in the most fair of ways and in a way that um, we might not understand sexual assault the way it happens um, in a community um, as, 
Uh, Adrienne, I wanted to go to someone you featured in the series, Annie Reed, the lone village police officer in Kiana, Alaska. She described having to shelter a sexual assault victim at her own home because it was too late to find an overnight shelter. The victim later had to travel 550 miles to speak with detectives in Anchorage because there was no nurse locally to conduct a sex assault exam. Meanwhile, it took three weeks for state troopers to arrest the suspect, who had a long record of similar assaults. This is Annie. I'm stressed. I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed. And, you know, it's, it's pretty hard. Sleepless nights and barely see my family. <laughs> so, yeah. How is it to, you know, have to arrest your neighbors <laughs> <laughs> pretty hard I mean you know everybody in this town you know some people like you some people don't it's all depending you know and Annie did this Annie did that and you know it's it's pretty hard you know I still have few friends out there but you know it's and few families that still talk to me but you know some you know, it's pretty hard when you have to arrest somebody. And then they'll start hating you for a while. But it gets good. It gets better. Again, that's Annie Reed, the lone village police officer in—is it pronounced Kiana, Alaska? Um, Adriana, Kiana. if you can talk about her specifically, and it's not only—this is about all crimes, and your whole—the whole series is called Lawless, but particularly sexual assault and what Annie was dealing with. Yes. Um, so Annie is not an outlier in Alaska. Um, my, a lot of the series—and this was—this uh, piece Kyle reported, so he'd be the best to talk about Annie, but um, I can tell you that in a small—much of the population in Alaska lives in villages. The largest city is Anchorage, and we're talking about 200,000 people, um, largest, most metropolis, uh, metropolitan area in the state. Um, much of the state is not connected by the road system, so um, you see large swaths of, of communities that, when a rape happens, either the, the victim must be uh, gotten, get on a plane to fly to the next— nearest hub community that may have the facilities to do the, the forensic exam, that may have the detectives to do the interviews. Um, but that also means that everyone in that village knows you got on a plane and knows that you reported whoever has assaulted you. And we're talking about communities of a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand people. Everyone knows each other. Many people are related. And so to, to come forward and report um, in any, not even just to the justice system, but to tell someone means you're telling your entire community what happened. And so the level of, of shame, the level of um, uncertainty of, of what it means to, to come forward and, and, and speak out for yourself um, might put you at further danger. Or it might, um, a lot of uh, Native folks are just uh, simply don't want to go to the big city to, to go then be, um, experience something uh, super traumatic, which is the forensic exam and the reporting process, only to be returned and, and then live with, with, um, with the consequences of that. So the layers of, of, complex, of complexity and, and relationships that overlap in policing and, and violence are really, uh, are really unique to, to the circumstances of the state. 
Uh, it's a huge state with very, very few people. Um, and so everyone, there's a joke that everyone knows each other and that, and so, um, anything that happens is, is game for, for discussion. And, and, uh, what's been Adriana, the reaction of government officials since the series, uh, came out, I, the, the, gov the current governor wants to further cut uh, the budget for, uh, public safety. Yeah, it's been mixed. You know, the, 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 the federal government came in and, and gave uh, tons of money for different efforts related to, to law enforcement. Um, but Alaska is also divided by, by Native corporations and by lots of other um, individual uh, interests that make it very complicated for, for, for these small communities to see uh, change in a way that's meaningful. And many of them are are burnt out with initiatives. Um, you know, they of course face other serious uh, issues like suicide, alcoholism, um, and so I think there's a, there's a general sense that um, the initiatives don't necessarily mean a lot to everyday people, um, and and the the, the state is is um, grappling with um, what this looks like, and and now you know the national spotlight on it. I think has has been interesting for them to, to deal with, um, but it remains a, a Republican state. It remains, um, and, you know, and that, not to say that that's, that makes it any different, but um, it's a conservative state. And so uh, it's been difficult, I think, for people to believe that change is gonna come in a meaningful way. Um, also, you know, rich, like the, the communities are, 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 the history there goes back thousands of years. So we're talking about also, these incredible native communities that have survived everything, and 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 were here before any of us came to the continent. So there's a rich history that they're very proud of and very protective of, um, and they care deeply for each other. So that's the other complication of of really taking on these conversations, is that um, this really means talking about sexual assault with your family and people you care deeply about, and and revealing um, the damage that's been done. Um, over many generations. You write um, in the piece, the series that was done, um, Alaska communities that have no police officers cannot be reached by road have nearly four times as many sex offenders per capita than the national average. Adriana Gallardo, we are going to link to your series um, as engagement reporter at ProPublica, again, done in collaboration uh, with the Anchorage Daily News that won the most recent Pulitzer, 2020 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. It's called Lawless, about sexual violence in the state of Alaska. Yes. Uh, we'll also link to your pieces in ProPublica. COVID-19 took Black Lives First. It didn't have to. And Los New Yorkers, essential and underprotected in the pandemic's epicenter. And your own life story, The Lucky Ones. We'll link to all those stories. Adriana Gallardo, thank you so much for joining us. For folks to see part one of our discussion, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us.
Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, from targeted voter ID laws to purging people from the rolls to fighting vote by mail, Republicans are making ever bolder attempts to suppress voting. Expanding the franchise doesn't work in their favor, Donald Trump unabashedly stated recently. It's a patently anti-democratic project, by definition, but corporate media's business-as-usual partisan framing reduces a struggle over a fundament of societal participation to jockeying between elephants and donkeys. It's a failure of the greatest magnitude, and no amount of ponderous, prize-winning books written in the aftermath will substitute for critical reporting done now to protect the integrity of the vote going into one of the most monumental presidential elections in the country's history. We'll talk about that with Ari Berman, author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and a senior reporter on the voting rights beat at Mother Jones. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. Editors call the Bureau of Labor Statistics' official unemployment rate the headline rate of unemployment, and those numbers for April were highly anticipated and devastating. The May 9th New York Times ran a bar chart of historic unemployment going back to 1946 across the top of the front page, with a long red bar down the right-hand column showing job losses for April a dramatic illustration of how the bottom had fallen out of the job market, with 20.5 million new jobless workers bringing the unemployment rate to 14.7 percent, the highest that number has been since the end of the 1930s. But as Dave Lindorf reports for FAIR.org, the blaring headlines should actually have been considerably worse. Because ignored, at least initially, by nearly all U.S. news organizations was an explanation made by the BLS at the end of its press release on April layoffs, explaining that the official unemployment rate, which is supposed to measure jobless people actively looking for work, was actually incorrect. In an addendum, the Bureau explained, there was also a large increase in the number of workers who were classified as employed but absent from work. As was the case in March, special instructions sent to the household survey interviewers called for all employed persons absent from work due to coronavirus-related business closures to be classified as unemployed on temporary layoff. However, it is apparent that not all such workers were so classified. It added that had those workers been properly classified as unemployed, the overall rate would have been almost five percentage points higher than reported. Well, it's not so easy to parse, but the upshot is that if reporters and editors had read the note, they should have reported the BLS headline unemployment rate as 19.7 percent, not 14.7 percent. That puts the real number in the range of unemployment rates that were being reported during the mid-1930s in the depths of the Great Depression. Maybe it sounds like a detail, but understanding the real impacts of the pandemic and the state response is going to occupy us for some time. We're bound to disagree on lots of things. It's important that journalism at least give us a solid grounding in information. Sadly, as more people continue to lose their jobs they will have more opportunities to get it right. 
And finally, a recent piece in foreign policy is headed with a photograph of a placard featuring an image of a nurse demonstrating the importance of wearing a face mask as both personal and interpersonal protection against the coronavirus. But reader beware. It's not public education. It's a, quote, propaganda poster, close quote, because it's not from New Jersey, but was seen on a wall in Hanoi. The message of the piece, headlined, Vietnam's Coronavirus Success is Built on Repression, is exactly that subtle, and apparently you're not meant to look too carefully at the reasoning. Vietnam, readers are told, is a country where, wait for it, the state, quote, knows your mobile phone number, close quote. Yes, they're receiving praise for limiting infections from COVID-19, reporting zero deaths so far, but the praise isn't warranted because, quote, the disease control mechanisms that have been effective are the same mechanisms that facilitate and protect the country's one-party rule, close quote. Okay, so what are the elements of this horror? First, it's explained, Vietnam has, quote, neighborhood wardens and public security officers who keep constant watch over city blocks, close quote. Sounds scary. Would those be anything like the police officers in Kentucky who shot Breonna Taylor to death while storming her home on a no-knock warrant for a man who'd already been arrested 10 miles away? or the ones who beat a man and sat on his head in New York City while enforcing social distancing protocols? I guess not. In Vietnam, quote, the structures that control epidemics are the same ones that control public expressions of dissent, close quote. Well, good thing we don't have any of that dissent controlling here, right? Although the mayor of New York City did just declare public protest illegal, And cops did just arrest writer Jill Nelson for writing Trump equals plague in chalk on an abandoned building. But in Vietnam, you can, quote, barricade government critics inside their houses to prevent them meeting journalists, close quote. That would be nothing like Stephen Donziger under house arrest since prosecuting an environmental case against Chevron in Ecuador the company having stated explicitly that its long-term strategy was to demonize him. In Vietnam, though, quote, the enforcers can be quite sure that their behavior is not going to be challenged by an independent judiciary because the Communist Party decides what the law is, close quote. That sounds bad. Should we get a weigh-in from U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr? who just got through saying that it didn't matter that the Justice Department dropped charges against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI in 2017 because, quote, history is written by the winners, close quote. And while other countries have used phone tracking and surveillance to trace infected people, foreign policy explains Vietnam is different and blameworthy because they're able to do so, quote, without the need to submit to legal or parliamentary oversight, close quote. Worlds away, we are to understand, from the U.S., except that the U.S. Senate just voted down an amendment to the Patriot Act that would have protected Americans' internet browsing and search history data from secret and warrantless surveillance by law enforcement. The piece is clearly trying to say don't envy another country's pandemic response because it comes at too high a cost. That might be food for thought, except that foreign policy doesn't want you to bother thinking very much at all. 
You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It was called one of the most brazen acts of voter suppression in modern history. With an unsigned opinion believed to come from Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court voted five to four that it was okay for Wisconsin to disqualify ballots postmarked and received after their primary election day, even though thousands of voters didn't even get those ballots until after election day due to the sheer overwhelm of requests for absentee ballots resulting from the pandemic. Coming literally on the night before the election, the ruling overturned lower court's decision to extend the absentee ballot deadline and forced people to risk their health in order to exercise their right to vote. Flawed in letter and spirit, the Supreme Court's decision is just part of the setback to the Democratic project reflected in Wisconsin, and we need to understand the story who did what and how, because without intervention, it's on track to be repeated. Ari Berman covers voting rights as a senior reporter at Mother Jones. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Ari Berman. Hey, thanks for having me, Janine. Well, in trying to understand what happened with April's primary in Wisconsin, You have written that you need to start the clock earlier than, say, Governor Evers' push to postpone the election in the face of COVID-19 and the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court's reinstatement of it. Could you talk us through some of the roots, what you called a vicious cycle, the roots of this outrageous series of events? Yeah, I think you have to go back to when Republicans took over Wisconsin after the 2010 election, controlling the state for the first time in 50 years. And they did a series of things to try to weaken Democratic power and to try to skew political representation. One of the things they did was they passed these really horrible gerrymandered maps that made it possible for Republicans to win no matter what happened. So in 2018, Republicans in Wisconsin only got 46 percent of the vote, but they got 64 percent of seats in the state legislature. So they have a majority now, even if people don't like them. And it was a Republican legislature, remember, that refused to postpone the election in Wisconsin and also refused to mail ballots to every voter. And, And so really, the reason why Republicans are so dug in in that state is because of the gerrymandered maps they've passed. Now, they've also done other stuff, like pass an array of voter suppression laws, such as a voter ID law, such as cutbacks to early voting, changes to voter registration, that have also made it easier for Republicans to win elections, including to win a majority on the state Supreme Court, which of course was the court that said that Tony Evers, the governor, couldn't delay the election. So when you say vicious cycle, they've kind of made themselves bulletproof in the sense that the courts then support the ruling, support the politicians, and it goes round and round, and it's kind of hard to intervene in that. It's not a foolproof system in the sense that a lot of people thought the Republican or the conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court, Daniel Kelly, was going to win the election. He didn't win the election. So it shows that when Democrats are mobilized enough, They can still win elections in Wisconsin, but there's a whole series of barriers they have to try to surmount. And in the case of gerrymandering, it's incredibly difficult because Democrats actually are winning more votes than Republicans in Wisconsin, but it's not translating into a political majority. And so I think in a situation where 
elections are so razor thin, particularly in that state, the Republicans have a built-in advantage. Before the election even begins, they are essentially ahead because of all the structural impediments they have put in to the political process through control of the legislature and through control of the courts. It was seen as a silver lining that Daniel Kelly, the conservative state Supreme Court justice, the protection of whose position was seen as a prime motivator for the Wisconsin GOP, that he wasn't successful, that he was unseated by Joel Karofsky. But then I see this story in the New York Times about how Democrats are publicly bragging about that victory and hoping that liberal activists can replicate that game plan of digital campaigning, essentially, as necessitated by the virus. It it made this scramble to protect the vote in a crisis seem like purely partisan gamesmanship, you know, and I know it's important to say what party's doing what, but can nothing come from the point of view of democracy itself? You you know, it seems to me there's plenty to chew on in Wisconsin without saying the only people critical of it are Democrats. Exactly. I think that it was good that Kelly lost, not because he was a conservative, but because the, the Republicans have made such an effort to suppress the vote that his election was symbolic of broader attacks on democracy, and thus his defeat could be interpreted as a defeat not for Republicans or a victory not for for Democrats, but a victory for democracy itself, and that a lot of people were able to vote in spite of the barriers that were set up, that people either waited on very long lines and very hazardous conditions to vote in person, or they were able to vote by absentee ballot at a time when the absentee ballot system was totally overwhelmed. But I don't know how transferable what happened in Wisconsin was. I mean, you have to remember, there was a Democratic presidential primary that day, and there was no corresponding Republican presidential primary. So a lot of people were just voting because they wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, and it just happened to click on the state Supreme Court race. So I'm not sure in a different environment uh, that you can really say, well, Wisconsin voted Democrat, that therefore vote by mail, for example, helps Democrats more than Republicans. I think that we don't know that. Um, the data we have on vote by mail, for example, uh, shows that both parties use it pretty much equally, which so, sort of ironic President Trump is saying that vote by mail gives Democrats these huge advantages when there's virtually no advantage for either party when it comes to voting by mail. In fact, it may even benefit Republicans because their constituencies tend to do it more than Democrats do. Yeah, it's interesting that it would be assumed that expanding the franchise uh, would be a negative for Republicans. Well, the, the Times had also a very informative piece on Wisconsin and the Supreme Court's ruling, um, calling out the errors, you know, uh, in the ruling itself. But I tripped over this bit where it referred to Brett Kavanaugh's presumed support for, quote, laws that make voting harder, regardless of their effects on traditionally disenfranchised groups like African-American and Hispanic people, close quote. I think media pull punches sometimes with regard to the to the white supremacist aspect of this voter suppression effort. It's not a mere byproduct of some lofty philosophy about the sanctity of the franchise. I think voter suppression has been motivated by white supremacy. Historically, certainly that's been the case. And I think it's also the case today that the interests of the Republican Party and and the interests of white America go hand in hand right now. And and so uh, you have seen consistently over and over and over again, the Republican Party uh, and the conservative majority in the Supreme Court 
intervene in ways that make voting more difficult for people of color. And they're not doing it because it happens to have that effect. They're doing it because they know it's going to have that effect. So to me, the really scary proposition here is that basically the Wisconsin opinion seemed to signal that Republicans can do whatever they want to make voting more difficult, even in a pandemic. And the Supreme Court's going to say that's okay. The sort of minimum would be that you say to people, there's so much chaos in this election, it probably shouldn't have even occurred in the first place. If we're going to have it, we've got to give people more time to be able to vote. Do you think that would just be the bare minimum that they would allow? The fact that the court said no to that makes it really scary because there's going to have to be a lot of contingency plans in November. There's going to have to be a lot of modifications to voting in November to make it so that everyone can vote. And if we don't make the process easier if we keep the same kind of ridiculous rules they had in Wisconsin. It's going to, be make, it, it's going to make it very difficult uh, for a lot of people to vote uh, if this pandemic is still going in November, which by all accounts it will be in some form or another. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like the pandemic was already going to affect the election. States need to be on top of voting by mail. A lot of polling places are shutting down. That would affect access. A lot of Poll workers are elderly people. People's addresses might be changing because they're laid off. There was plenty to contend with due to COVID-19 before you even get to the suppression that it seems like it's providing cover for. Exactly. Like if states did nothing, voting would just be difficult right now because in a pandemic, the safest way to vote is from your home. And most states are not equipped to have people vote by home. Only five states do universal vote by mail. So in every other state, it's more difficult. Now, some states have more voting by mail. A lot of the Western states do either universal voting by mail or near universal voting by mail. But on the East Coast and the Midwest and the South, the majority of votes are still cast in person. So that means they are asking a lot of people, including election officials, to use a method that is not really used for that purpose. Vote by mail is really supposed to be used for people who can't get to the polls on election day for one reason or another. And that means we are seeing a growth in vote by mail. In 2018, about a quarter of Americans voted by mail. That still means 75% of the country didn't vote by mail. We would expect even in the best of times, there would be hiccups with so many people trying a new system, let alone the fact that there's gonna be all these efforts now to make it harder to vote by mail, which is going to put all of these impediments in front of voters that probably haven't even voted this way before. Well, and then, of course, we have to add, as being of a piece with this, the assault on the U.S. Postal Service. Although, as Julie Holler wrote for FAIR.org, media aren't so much connecting those dots. They're talking about the White House attack on USPS, and they're talking about the election, but they're not necessarily saying, you know, this is going to be right at the crux of this set of problems here. Yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't connect it. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. If you're going to vote by mail, the post office is going to deliver those ballots. Right. So it seems like a huge coincidence if suddenly Donald Trump would be attacking the post office in the midst of an election, are people are going to be using vote by mail in unprecedented numbers. So no matter why the president's doing this, if, if you believe it, that he's just mad at Amazon or whatever, even if you take that at, at face value, the net effect of attacking the post office, of putting partisan people in there, of denying them funding, is it's going to make it harder for them to be able to carry out this responsibility to make sure ballots are delivered and then sent back to people. And the post office 
is going to need a lot more resources, a lot more staff. It's going to be very difficult for them, too. They are also operating under extraordinary circumstances right now. They also have people that are getting sick and they're putting their lives at risk to deliver mail for us. And an election in which 50%, 60%, 70% of the people vote by mail would be tough for the post office in the best of times, let alone at a time when President Trump seems to be declaring war on them. Well, Politico reported recently that the GOP has a at least $20 million war chest set aside for lawsuits over voting from home. What is the status of efforts to protect November's process? Do we have legislative moves at least being lined up in defense of protecting the vote in November? There's been a ton of lawsuits about all the obscure rules over mail voting. Like, do you need a witness signature on your ballot? Do you need to upload a copy of your ID with your mail ballot? Does your ballot need to be postmarked by election date? Does it need to be received by election date? There are so many rules for mail balloting people don't even know about that could lead to your ballot being thrown out without having any idea that your votes weren't counted. So there's litigation on all of these fronts in a bunch of different states, which I think is a positive development depending on the outcome of that. There's also a lot of state efforts to expand vote by mail. And actually, a fair number of Republican secretaries of state have been making it easier to expand vote by mail, probably because they understand, like Donald Trump, that a lot of Republicans also use vote by mail. They probably don't want their voters to be disenfranchised. The Congress has um, allocated $400 million for vote by mail and other election assistance, which I think pretty much everyone believes is totally insufficient. There's a new bill out from House Democrats, the HEROES Act, that would give the states $3.6 billion dollars for vote by mail, which would be a big step up and also include a number of other reforms that are important, like early voting and online election day registration, because there's still going to be a lot of people that are going to vote in person. And the best way for people to vote in person would be to give them more time so they can social distance at the polls, while also making it easier to vote by mail so that postage is paid, so that it's easy to get an absentee ballot, all of these things. And I think we're probably heading for a really big fight between House Democrats and Senate and the White House over the vote-by-mail provisions in whatever the next recovery package is. I personally think Democrats should have fought a lot harder to put some of this stuff in the first recovery package when they had the political leverage. Well, and this is something clearly where time is of the essence. If we need to be amping up to get these processes in place now, we can't suddenly throw it together in October. No, especially with voting by mail, because it's not just like opening a polling place. Voting by mail takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for people to request ballots. It takes a lot of time to get ballots. You can't just show up to vote by mail at 5 p.m. on Election Day. Right. <laughs> like you can show up and, and vote in person on Election Day. So states really need to start doing all of this stuff now. And if you talk to state election officials, there's so much equipment they need that they don't have. There's so many more uh, people they need to, to do this kind of thing. They need to train everyone in how to count ballots, how to send out ballots. Otherwise, the system just gets totally overwhelmed, like in Wisconsin, where election officials were having to work 100 hours a week. Uh, people were not getting ballots they requested. People were totally confused about what the rules were to have their absentee ballots counted whether they needed a witness signature, which they did on their ballots, whether they need to upload a copy of their ID with their ballots, which they did, all of these crazy rules. And so in that case, the data we have from Wisconsin would show that in a much higher turnout election across 50 states, there's going to be a whole lot of problems unless we do a bunch of things right now 
to make the system run smoother. Well, it's clearly not too soon for people, just as individuals, to be sorting out if and exactly how they'll be able to vote, you know, to be looking into whatever the the rules are in their locality to make sure that that can happen. Well, we're talking about the impact of the virus, but we know that the suppression, voter suppression, predates all of that. We're also still hearing, aren't we, about purges, about purges of the rolls, another reason to check in and make sure that you are still listed. Are there other voting rights things that maybe are going under the radar that you'd like to call attention to? I think we've talked about a, a bunch of them already, but I mean, I think it's just worth noting that there are already all these efforts before COVID to try to make voting more difficult, whether it was uh, requiring IDs to vote or trying to kick people off the voting rolls or limiting the number of polling places. All of those things are being magnified in a pandemic. And so I think it's really important to pay a lot of attention to the whole debate over vote by mail, because that's going to be a key way people vote in November. I also hope we don't glorify vote by mail, because there are some unintended consequences of that. And then I hope people just stay focused on all of these other fights that are going to remain really critical, and that if you don't have an ID now, it's going to be a lot harder to get one when the DMV is not open. If you're not on the voting rolls right now, it's going to be a lot harder to re-register when there aren't big registration drives. And so I think the big picture is important, but I think all the minutia, all, all the little things, the technical details that we tend to ignore could also have a really big impact in this election during a pandemic. Well, let me just ask you, finally, I've heard some things kind of bubbling up that given the confusion, given the what looks like chaos, at least this far out around the possible the possibilities of voting, that we may have concerns about the legitimacy of whatever happens in the election, that there will be just enough murkiness uh, that folks will be able to call the results into question. And that's not going to be helpful. No, it's not going to be helpful. And I think also given the likelihood of major litigation in one or more key swing states about the rules governing mail balloting, I think it's very possible you could have not just one, but two, three, four, half a dozen um, Bush v. Gore scenarios if the election is close. And so I don't want to be too alarmist in May about this, but just like the virus is scary, the prospect of holding an election in a virus is also very scary. And there are a lot of possibilities that may have seemed remote or even possibly hysterical that are really quite possible in this day and age. All the more reason for sober and clear-eyed reporting to at least keep us focused on what's happening, you know, to at least keep us paying attention. Absolutely. No, for, for sure. And I think if anything good has come from the Wisconsin thing is that a lot of people are paying attention to what's happening in the democratic process now in a way that they may have not have been before. We've been speaking with Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones. They're online at motherjones.com. The book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.